Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. This morning we're going to be reading and then studying together chapter 3. So Jonah chapter 3. So here the biblical author writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3. He writes, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself in sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily, to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray now that you would grant your Holy Spirit to come and to press the truth of this text into our hearts with heavenly, with divine power. We so desperately need to recapture a vision of God, a vision of grace, a vision of faithfulness to the calling that you've given to us, to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. 
O Lord, come and do a great work in us this morning. Make us to hope in God and grant us to be so very fruitful in all our labors. We look to you for it, for it comes from you alone. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. So what do we do with God's resets in our lives? That's where we were dropped off last week. The fish vomiting Jonah out upon the dry land. What do we do with God's resets in our lives? Here's a thought and a question. Why not, on the basis of this text, recapture a God-sized vision, a God-saturated vision for word-centered ministry amongst a perishing world? Why not that? As we were after your input on our summer study, Jonathan mentioned a little bit about that uh, in the announcements this morning, a book that we almost added for you to cast your vote upon. That was this book called A God-Sized Vision. It was written by Colin Hansen. It's basically this book that retails all these stories of God's great awakenings, his revivals throughout history. We're not doing that book. But without doing it, we can pray that Jonah 3 will suffice for us. Uh, In the truest sense of the word, it is an epic work of the omnipotent mercy of God. And it begs the question for us this morning, is our vision for word-centered ministry in this perishing world as big as Jonah 3? Is it as big as this? Is it even as big as serving the repentance of one soul? I fear some Christians live their whole lives without being instrumental in bringing the whole gospel to one and are content to have it so. How can that be? If you've been born again by the grace of God under the preaching of the gospel, how can that be? The answers to that are probably multiple. But the one we'll fix on this morning is just the slow loss of this little book's big message. And that's that salvation belongs to the Lord. And then how that applies to you and me. How that applies to the saved. Already, as we've been going through this book, we've heard its call to a gospel readiness that Jonah did not model for us. We felt its gracious reach in rescuing and resetting the saved from the depths of our ministerial sin and our unwillingness, our disobedience to God, and our calling to take the gospel wherever He calls us. Today, though, we really just want to remember its main assertion, okay? The main assertion of this truth that salvation belongs to the Lord is that God, being God, can save anybody. He can save anybody at any time and anywhere, and He can multiply it to any degree into every corner of the earth as He sees fit, as is befitting of His glory. So let's not despise... In all that, let's not despise the day of so-called small things, but also let's not lose sight or lose heart or lose zeal or even expectant prayers for a working of God as we have it in a passage like Jonah 3. Does 
your hope in God this morning need soaking in perhaps a million evil souls repenting immediately and earnestly under a single word of God on judgment, no less, through a flawed messenger like Jonah. Like, as I spent time in that this week, I was realizing how very much I need that. How much my hope needs to soak in that. My soul needs to see this. How about yours, beloved? Why don't we see it together starting in chapter 3, verse 1. And Jonah preaching. Jonah preaching. Other than the word fleshed out in Christ, as we saw in John chapter 1, or Jesus saying that He came into the world to preach, as in Mark chapter 1, I can't think of a greater commendation for the instrumentality of preaching to the conversion of souls than Jonah chapter 3. I don't know if you know this about me, but I was converted under preaching right out there in the congregation, a lost person. I was converted under the preaching of God's Word, and by the grace of God, I've also been blessed to preach and see others come to faith in Christ through it. But you know, there have been times that I've mentioned this to other Christians only to be met with surprise and shock and awe, like they couldn't believe that, like they didn't suspect that that could ever happen, like they'd never seen or heard of such a thing before. Preaching in their experience seemed to be sort of this futile thing, this powerless thing, maybe a habitual thing, but certainly didn't have the power to convert sinners. So we just need Jonah chapter 3 to clear something up for us. Evangelism, like one-on-one evangelism, isn't the only way that the halls of heaven have been filled with sinners regenerated into saints. The faithful preaching of God's Word, both by its saving activity in the moment and its equipping the saints for the work of evangelistic ministry over time, has, in my study, actually been chiefly instrumental in all of that. But at any rate... We want to be a church, then, that's most highly esteeming biblical preaching, proclamation. And with that in mind, let's thank God for next opportunities. The only person that didn't need next opportunities or second chances in ministry or life was Jesus. I need them, you need them, Jonah needed them, and God is very, very gracious to give them. So Jonah's landed on his feet here, and it says, verse 1, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah, what? The second time. Now to be clear, just because you've had an office doesn't mean you're sure to keep it. You may be qualified in one season, when in another, for whatever reason you're not. And sometimes... We know ministers may fall so far, they may fall so headlong that there is no next at all. It's true that the Lord's mouthpieces must be above reproach. You can find that in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And sometimes being above reproach, of course, it does not mean sinless, right? But it must mean, it must mean being exemplary in repentance when we're not above reproach. 
Not all sins are instantly disqualifying. That's all I'm trying to get at here. And that appears to be the case with Jonah's. And clearly, God has not been pleased with Jonah's mix of ethnocentristic sin. He's not been pleased with Jonah's racism. He's not been pleased with Jonah's gracelessness, his being out of touch with the grace of God in the gospel. He's not been pleased with Jonah's ministerial sin and rebellion. And yet, he's still been pleased to discipline, to rescue, and to reset Jonah for this ministry. Man, so gracious. I thank God for having mercy on his ministers. Without it, we would not have this great awakening in Nineveh. Um, Without it, would Jonah have gone to preach so that the Ninevites could hear and then believe God and call upon him so that they could be saved from the disaster that was impending? God knows even the prophets, like Jonah, needed mercy like this. And so then the preaching commission is given, you see there. And with a new point of clarity, I think, end of verse 2, he says here, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. be clear, Jonah is not free to say whatever he wants. He's constrained to preach what God wants to be said. And dear ones, the importance of understanding that cannot be overstated for us. The pulpit has a disastrous habit of using God's word to say whatever the preacher wants. It's this disastrous habit where we don't trust the word of God to do the work of God. It's this prideful inclination to believe we know better than God what souls need to hear to be saved and then to be deeply discipled. And we see this in so many ways in the context of a local church. We see ministries pushing the Bible to the margins in favor of what they think more necessary for souls as if anything else could be. We see preachers picking and choosing their subjects from week to week and the many, not all, but many malnourished souls that then sit and starve under that kind of ministry. We hear pastors inviting the populace to their churches under this promise, I have a word from the Lord. And it's the most important thing you're ever going to hear in your life. That's amazing. And I want to be like, brother, are you a prophet? Because if not, words matter. And it would be better for you to say, I have a text to preach. I have a passage of sacred scripture to explain. I have an inscripturated word to exposit, and then you go and you do that with all your might. You do that with all of the strength that God supplies, trusting that God knows best what you and I need to hear. That's one reason that we try, we try, we make attempts at modeling what we call expositional preaching here. 
why we're committed to drawing out for you in the consecutive flow of whole books of the Bible what God's put into a given text. It really is an exercise in both humility and trust. As it constrains us, constrains us to preach the whole counsel of God to you, including its most difficult but then often most powerful and formative parts and truths and subjects. It constrains us to give our all to saying what God has given us in His Word to say to all. And to the degree that we are dissonant right there, it's my conviction that we're going to be disadvantageous to your souls. I mean, listen, who really wants to preach, for instance, you guys are sinners under the judgment of God and you're going to go to a real, literal, eternal hell. Who wants to preach that? So if our preaching is captive to what we are comfortable with, if our preaching is captive to what we are skilled at preaching, our sweet spots, our premonitions, I have a word from the Lord, instead of, Preaching captive to God's word, that will never happen. We'll never choose to preach Jonah chapter 3. But I want you to see that if that did not happen right here, if Jonah had been captive to anything other than the word of God, the message that he told him, would Nineveh have repented as they do? I want you to hear that it is a blessed people whose ministers trust the Word of God and entrust you to the Word of God, sparing you nothing. Why is the church so like the world? And why is the world so unaffected by the church? In some measure, it might be that the church is also living in a kind of darkness because they're not having the Word of God regularly, actually unfolded, exposited, and preached to them in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, along these lines, you see verse 3, Jonah makes a good use of God's reset on his life. This time, in obedience to God, the prophet goes to Nineveh. He goes to Nineveh. So, this great fish salvation is still operative in his heart. It appears that thankfulness is still operative in his heart, and thankfulness is a mighty preservative in ministry. You may have seen just recently uh, that Tim Keller has passed away. Tim Keller is now with the Lord. And in tribute to him, John Piper gave counsel to ministers from the last email that he received from Keller. And it was basically this. Love the Savior more than serving the Savior. 
Love the Savior more than serving the Savior. Be more overjoyed and more thankful for what He has done for you than anything you will ever do for Him. By grace, your name is written in heaven. (laughs) Fix your heart there and you will find fuel to serve Him well on earth. That fish's belly was a timeout for Jonah to feel deeply again the mercy of God towards him. It was a timeout in his life for Jonah to feel deeply again how thankful he should be to the Lord, his Savior. And so long as that impression abides in Jonah, he will go as he's been called. There is one more chapter in the book, and we'll have to deal with that next week. And so verse 4, Jonah goes a third of the way into the city center of this notoriously evil city, and here's his message. He calls out against it, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown by God. So we need to hear that this is a word of judgment. This Israelite prophet waltzes in, having just been spit out by a great fish, he waltzes in to the middle of the city, the Assyrian capital, to a people who are going to eventually destroy Israel while mocking the God of Israel, and he says to them, you are all, in fact, sinners whom that God has weighed and found wanting, and in 40 days you are all going to be condemned. You're going to fall under the judgment of God. Your sins have not been committed in secret. Your violence is known to the great avenger. Your evil has actually been recorded, and it will have a reckoning in history. In fact, you've got 40 days to get all your affairs in order. And yet I wonder, do you detect anything of grace in that message? Judgment is imminent, but against what we deserve, judgment is not instant. And there is an infinite kindness in that. The justice of God against Nineveh could have come instantly. It could have come immediately. It could have come in four days. It could have come in 14 days, but it's going to come in 40 days. So they basically have like a month and a half. And to Jonah's chagrin, it is an opportunity for these Ninevites to undercut being overthrown by God. God gives sinners who deserve not a second longer to live outside of hell. 3,456,000 seconds more to cry out for mercy in the light of eternity. 3,456,000 seconds to eternity. 3,456,000 seconds to eternal judgment. So friend, if you're unbelieving right now, let me just implore you, don't waste one more second of your life in that condition. For all you know, you might not have one more second promised to you. You're living on a borrowed kindness from God. 
that's always intended, Romans chapter 2, to lead you to repentance. So do instead what you see Nineveh did. Under the preaching of Jonah, judgment and grace, there we see is Nineveh repenting. And and they don't appear to bide their time. But they were given by God. But you see in verse 5, it says, the people of Nineveh believed. Now watch now. This is very important. The people of Nineveh believed Jonah. No. It's not what it says. It says, the people of Nineveh believed God. So, Let us never again doubt the power of God in the word preached. Beloved, these folks were, plain and simple, polytheistic pagans engrossed in all manner of ungodliness. Like whatever you can think, don't think about it, but whatever you could think, that's what they're engrossed in. They're renowned for all kinds of violence and they're totally ignorant of the word of God. They had not grown up in godly homes or in good churches where the Word of God was prominent and handled with penetrating insight and care. For all we know, this may have been the first time it had ever graced their land. But as it did, and Jonah's voice hit their ears, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. As that hit their ears, it appears God's word struck their hearts. His everlasting love for them came clear as the truth landed, not only in word, but as Paul will say to the Thessalonican church, in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You see, they didn't toy around here with this word. They were like these flowers that Luke and I saw the other day and not like the doofus in the dodge that we also saw the other day. Allow me to explain. We were on a jog. It's a new thing. Really, I was on a jog. Luke was on a walk. That's how he kept pace with me. So we're on the way out. And on this bright and sunny day, this Dodge truck comes roaring down this pedestrian heavy street. And so I put up my hands like this because I'm like the old guy that's shouting at the clouds, you know. Put up my hands to try to get him to slow down. But instead of slowing down, he just looked at me and he saw me doing this. And in all that light, He decided instead to accelerate, accelerate around the bend where in God's mercy, he just missed clipping this older couple that was crossing the street. A doofus, okay? So then on our way back, jogging along, Luke points out these flowers on the side of the road. When he's pointing out all these flowers, they've bent themselves. They've bent themselves where? Toward the light, to get the light of the sun, and a sermon illustration is born. 
be like the flower, not the doofus and the dodge. Be like the Ninevites. Now that's a crazy thing to say. Be like the Ninevites. When God sent them His light and warned them of their peril, they did not accelerate further in their sinning. They hit the brakes. They bent toward the light, like those flowers, and they started repenting. They believed God. And as is typical of a mighty work of grace, I want you to see there that it is spreading, apparently, in Nineveh, irrespective of persons and states and conditions and all these things. Dear ones, when what we're dealing with here in this passage is some kind of great awakening, it seems. It's not one or two repenting. It's not just the poor who are believing God. It's what Islay Burns records about the great awakening that happened in Kilsith, Scotland back in the 1800s. He says, quote, The web at this time became nothing to the weaver. The forge became nothing to the blacksmith. The furrow became nothing to the plowman. Here in Jonah chapter 3, we could say that the throne became nothing to the king. They forsook all to crowd every street with prayer, every road with earnest conversation, every park with single wrestlers with God, every home with fasting for divine mercy. And as said in our text, they did this from the greatest of them to the least of them. Do you believe in God for this? Are you believing He can do this? Among the darkest and vilest. And that He can do it in spades. Through preaching. That sin is sin and judgment is sure. Do we believe that? Do we believe that there is no hopeless case In all the world. Are you believing God for this in your home? Are you believing God for this with your kids at school? Are you believing God for this in your apartment complex at 2 a.m. when people are falling off the balconies? Because they're so inebriated. Are you believing God for this on your campus? Are you believing God for this in this sin-laden city? Not Nineveh, Clemson. Are you believing this for this ungodly nation? Not Assyria, America. And are we not only believing God for this, but are we a friend to this? In the midst of the New York City awakening that happened in 1857, started with a few guys praying, go figure. A minister named James Alexander, he offers several questions to help us discern whether or not we're actually a friend to things like we're seeing in Jonah chapter 3. So here we go. He says, do you rejoice in awakening? Do you rejoice in it? 
Do you hear these things in Jonah chapter 3 and find your soul just rising with joy and with gratitude and with hope and with praise? Do you, do you pray for awakening? Does that make it into your praying from day to day? Awakening. He asks this, he says, are you yourself a subject of awakening? Does your heart care for the fruits of awakening? Do you long to see God honored in this way? And are you helping to forward awakening? You look at verses 6 to 9 in our passage, we might ask, are you as the king of Nineveh? Is this not a remarkable occurrence? We're told that this single word of God rent the city from the greatest of them to the least of them, and that that apparently was no exaggeration. The word reached the king, and when the word reached the king, the king abdicated his throne to the king of heaven. There is no hopeless case in the world. That's what happens, by the way, when the Word of God is faithfully preached. The King of Kings begins to reclaim and recapture and reestablish His throne, His power, His authority amongst His people, take it or leave it. And by the grace of God, this great, however wicked man, takes it. This Assyrian king becomes a friend to the word, he becomes a promoter of repentance, and he becomes a herald of hope. And so once again, listen up all the Lord's Jonas. Soon as the news reaches this king, he arises. What did Jonah do the first time? Not that. He arises, he gets off his throne, he gets on his face as though dead before the living God. And not content with that, he then exhorts every living thing. Not just the people, but apparently all the animals as well. Every living thing, by the power vested in him, cut off your life, stop eating, stop drinking, cease and desist from your sinning, and in that place of all that, begin to call out mightily to God. This king was a friend to what the Lord was doing in Nineveh. And here's the thing, here's the thing. He urgently repents himself and then calls for repentance on the basis of what exactly? Only a maybe. Only a maybe. Do you see verse 9? He's neither a prophet of God nor a priest of the Lord. This man does not know the Scriptures, and he's not a seminarian. If he were on Slack, he'd be writing to Pastor George in the new Bible questions thread. Can we be sure, Pastor George, that if we repent, God will relent? Can we be sure, Pastor George, that the God of Israel is actually this merciful, that He would be merciful to Ninevites like us? Because I don't know. If we turn, will God turn? If we repent, 
Will we not perish? Will we live? Who knows is what the king says in verse 9. But it's the only hope and prayer we have. And in this, this king is a rebuke. (laughs) He is a rebuke to Jonah and he is a rebuke to you and me. You know why? Look with me at chapter 4, verse 2 real quick. Why did Jonah not want to go to Nineveh and preach even sinners in the hands of an angry God? Why did Jonah not want to do that? Because Jonah knew. He knew what the king did not know. That God is gracious and merciful and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and what? Relenting from disaster. Jonah knows that God is inclined to save sinners, whereas the king only hopes so. But on that dim hope, the king urgently acts for the salvation of the perishing, while Jonah, with revelation brighter than the sun and the assurance of the knowledge of God, has to be vomited out before he'll take the first regret-filled step in the same direction. Where are you and I on that spectrum today? You know more than the king of Nineveh knew. But are you acting for the good of souls as urgently as he did? Where will you and I go from here? Jonah has preached, Nineveh has repented. And so we're left to the resolution of the passage. Will God be relenting? And the answer in verse 10 is simply the greatest fact that fallen man can discover. And the answer is yes. It says, when God saw what they did, how they turned, repented, From their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He had said He would do to them, and He did not do it. When a sinner truly repents, God mercifully relents. In the world of truth, there's none greater than that right there. Maybe you forego forego all that for a second and you say, but doesn't that make God sort of a a manipulator at best, a liar at worst? He said 40 days, but it never really happened. So isn't this just all an idle threat? Isn't this opium for the masses? Isn't this designed to create some kind of spiritual hysteria over nothing really at all? No. I think that's why the book of Nahum is next. Stick around for that. It's coming in June. Nineveh 
is going to be overthrown by God. Just not in 40 days, about 100 years later from Jonah. And the city would have felt God's anger in 40 days were it not for their repentance. Now, of course, God knows all of the ins and outs and all of that in ways that are still mysterious to you and me. But what's clear, what's supposed to be preached to us in all of that is just this. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's right. Salvation belongs to the Lord. If He wants to say something true, that judgment is imminent, but use it to bear his saving arm and in an instant bring so many to repentance and to faith so that that judgment is not only deferred, but in the case of true believers, entirely and eternally satisfied and put away. That is God's sovereign prerogative. Glory be to God for his grace. As I've alluded to a time or two, one of the greatest sermons of history is called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It was preached on a missionary tour in Enfield, Connecticut, July 8, 1741, by a guy named Jonathan Edwards. You should know him. He preached on a passage named, uh, named Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 32-35. The, the text there is, Their foot shall slide in due time. And in that sermon, he says famously, The unconverted sinner has no refuge and nothing to take hold of. All that preserves them every moment out of a gaping, flaming hell is the mere arbitrary will and uncovenanted, unobliged forbearance, long-suffering, of an angry, incensed God. Yo. And as he expounds on that, guess what happens? Immediately and widely, great awakening. That God began through that truth to be gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. That God, through that truth, began to convict of sin and soften to guilt and make judgment concrete to bring Christ into view for souls who were stripped of hope to grant repentance and faith in Jesus. He began to save sinners just as he is thrilled to do today. Oh friend, upon repenting, you will find God relenting. So if you haven't yet, why wouldn't you repent of your sins and believe what God has said, not just by Jonah, but above all, through Jesus. In Luke chapter 11, it's what Jonathan read for us in the call to worship. If you go there, what you're going to find is uh, that the crowds are increasing. 
you think that Jesus would give them a different sermon than he does. But Jesus. Crowds are increasing, and he scolds them. He calls them an evil generation. For all the light they had from God in Jesus, it was not enough. That generation of Israelites, they were not repenting. They accelerated in their sinning, using a lust for signs as a cover for biding their time. And to that, Jesus brings up these nasty Gentile Ninevites to them. He reminds them how at the preaching of a rescued and reset Jonah, those God-ignorant Gentiles repented and perhaps came into the fold of God. And then he tells them that at the judgment, like the final judgment, those Ninevites are going to be raised up and they're going to condemn the Israelites if Jesus is day. Because something greater than Jonah was here. You want a sign? Jesus asks. I'll give you one more. And by it, you'll know that the word I've spoken is the word of God to you. Take it or leave it. At your hands, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die on a cross and then I'm going to be buried. But three days later, death is going to have to vomit me out because it's unable to hold me down and I'm going to rise from the dead. And in that series of saving events, the eternal provision for all of God's relenting throughout the course of history comes into view. How in the world is it that a city of unsavory pagans can be justly spared the justice of God? You've got to learn to ask questions like that. How is it that a growing crowd of God-acknowledging suburbanites could also be justly spared the justice of God against their Christ-rejecting wickedness? How was it that you and I and any other lost, broken, depraved, sin-enslaved, Satan-discipled, guilt-ridden hellion could be justly spared the justice of God we know we deserve. The answer is only Jesus. Christ crucified and raised. That's it. It's that God sent Jesus to die for our sins, all mine, all yours, all theirs, and that Christ did that. He really did that. That's the importance, by the way, of the resurrection of Christ. It says Christ did it so that if we turn from our sins and believe in Him, entrust our eternity to His mercy, God will not do what He otherwise must do in order to be just. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If we repent and believe in Him, God will relent. 
Jesus paid the penalty our sin deserved. He really did it that we, that you, friend, might not perish but live in this assurance that God will not require that penalty of you. It's done. It's finished. It's paid for. All that's in front of the believer from here on out to forever is mercy and grace. And listen now, a city. Not like Clemson. Praise God. Not like Nineveh but the city of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, dear ones, what are we doing with God's resets in our lives? Jonah 3 is an encouragement to use our resets for going to the hopelessly godless with a growing, increasing hope in God. If you will, it's to be preaching a relentless and relenting God in Christ to any repenting soul. Beloved, listen. Faithfulness with second chances. Faithfulness with next opportunities in the hands of this God may very well lead to this city being overtaken by eternal Salvation. Can you imagine? So, what's next for you? Who's, who's next for us? We have been sent. Right? Matthew 28, Great Commission. We have been sent, but will we go? Will we go and will we preach the truth that the perishing may hear and believe and call out with confidence? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. May God from this text give us a God-sized vision of what may be if you and I will just be faithful. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we lift up this time to you this word to you, our hearts to you, please confirm the truth of your word in our hearts. By the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray for the glory of Christ. Amen.